back to The Dive, the weekly podcast series in which we take an in-depth look at a topic that has come up in the previous week's study of Daf Yomi. My name is Yitzchak Shalom. I'm delighted to be doing this fifth shiur in Eruvin. And again, it is the second part of a two-parter, which started with the issue of Tchumin Doraita, and per the request of our participants, to take a look at the general hierarchy of laws in the Torah. So we will not really be touching on Eruvin-specific issues in the Shi'ur, nor on specific sugyot in the previous seven Dapim. But again, it springs from from uh, the larger discussion, which is very much part of Eruvin, which is the status of different kinds of laws. So we want to start with the following premise before we get to the sources, but the sources we're looking at are on pages 3 through 6 of the handout, which again is a two-part. Last week we looked at pages 1 and 2. It starts with source 13. But before looking at that, just a broad introduction. When Am Yisrael left Mitzrayim, along the way we were given mitzvot. We were given certain mitzvot in Mitzrayim. We were given certain mitzvot along the way. And then, of course, we came to Har Sinai, and at Har Sinai, we accepted the Torah. We accepted a Brit, a covenant with God. And when we read in the Torah, we read specific commands that are explicit and that are clear, and whose meaning is really unequivocal. You're not allowed to have chametz in your house during seven days. Uh, you must uh, eat the Korban Pesach on this particular day. However, there are lots and lots of details that are not so clear. What does owning chametz mean? Uh, where are you supposed to do the Korban Pesach in subsequent years, etc.? Okay, so that's piece one of this puzzle. On the other extreme, there are clearly laws that are part of our permanent halachic landscape that were created later. They were created later by different batei din, different courts, and we're going to read about that uh, almost immediately. And uh, and became a permanent fixture on the halachic landscape, on the halachic uh, scene, um, uh, and they were in response to um, societal need, to new geopolitical reality, many things that were established as a commemoration of the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed, as an example. So what we're going to explore during the course of this shiur, and we're going to chiefly rely on the Rambam because he expressed all of these issues so clearly, uh, really in a, in a crystalline manner, uh, is what is the status of the different kinds of laws that we have and how do we understand where they came from? I want to start with the critical passage when it comes to rabbinic authority, uh, passage in the beginning, near the beginning of uh, Parshat Shoftim, source 13. When something is too wondrous for you, when it comes to law, three different areas of law, including ritual law, there are quarrels in your cities. You get up and go to the place where God chooses, which means now that there's immediately a tie between the judicial and the religious center. So you come to the Kohanim and to the Shofet, who is in your day. All right, we're not using necromancy. And you seek out, and they will tell you what the law is. So in other words, the scenario as it's painted here is, you are living throughout the land, and wherever you are, there is something, a matter which is too difficult for you to decide or difficult, too difficult to, a matter too difficult to adjudicate. You come to the central Beitin, you ask them, and they will tell you what the law is. Viasita. Now, how are they going to know what the law is? That's something we have to look into. You shall do exactly what they tell you from that place. Be very careful to guard exactly as they tell you, which means the Torah is now giving a mandate with the power of law to the court. Based on the instruction that they instruct you, the law that they tell you, that's what you should do. Don't deviate to the right or the left. Herman Wook famously said that the... Uh, Cain Mutiny was written based on Rashi's comment on this uh, on this pasuk. Uh, even if they tell you that right is left and left is right, you still have to obey them. And 
And a man who intentionally violates their laws uh, shall be put to death. And will put the fear of the people and they will not violate that anymore. Okay, that's piece one. Um, now, uh, taking a look at the, uh, at the next source, uh, source number 14, which we're going to come back to towards the end of the Shi'ur. Uh, but it's a very famous passage. Darash Rabbi Simloi. Mitzvot Nemrulo Moshe. Moshe was told six hundred thirteen mitzvot. Now this is in the Gemara. sixty-five mitzvot lotase, corresponding to the solar year, which is a mnemonic. It's a way to remember it, and two hundred forty-eight, which in their uh, pre-modern. Uh, anatomy was a way of understanding anatomy was the amount of uh, limbs that a person has corresponding to the limbs. Okay, now we're going to come back to that passage, but now we're going to get fully involved in the process of understanding how the law works. And to that, we're going to turn to Hilchot Mamrim. Now, just briefly, if you remember in the passage that we just read in Dvarim, we saw that if a person deliberately violates the rule of the court, is put to death. This is somebody that, refer, that, that we're not referring here to an, a citizen who doesn't listen to the instruction of the court, but rather to an elder who's a member of the court and deliberately holds on to his own rejected opinion, tiny minority opinion that was voted down, and instructs uh, based on that again. That's what we call a zakain mamre, a rebellious elder. All right, and so now in Hilchot Mamrim, the Rambam lays out the whole function of the court. Beit Din the central court in Yerushalayim, the big court in Yerushalayim, Heim Ikar Torah Shebaalpeh. Now it's an important phrase. They are the essentials of the oral Torah. We're going to talk about the oral Torah, and that's a lot of what this year is going to be about to see what we mean. Heim Amudei Ha'Hora'a, they are the pillars of instruction. It's from them that instruction goes out to everybody. The passage that we just saw in Dvarim is referring to them. Keeping what they tell you is a mitzvah Anybody who has faith in, but anybody who is also loyal to Moshe and his Torah must associate his religious actions with them and rely upon them. And uh, and now what's the reason for that? It's fairly straightforward. We have Torah Moshe. We know that we're obligated to live in a sukkah. What's the definition of a sukkah? We know that we're obligated to take the Arba Minim. What, how do we define a proper lulav? We know that we have to hear the shofar. What's the definition of a shofar and what kind of sounds do we have to hear? All of those definitions. So anybody who wants to follow and is loyal to follow the Torah of Moshe has to rely upon the Torah Shbal Peh to define how all of that is done. Right? And the Beit Din HaGadol B'Shushalayim is the fountain head, uh, the font of, of, the, of that information. All right. Now, now, this is not talking about Zakein Mamre. It's like an individual who doesn't do what they say violates a lotase. In other words, besides the fact that in many cases they may not have fulfilled the mitzvah because they define the mitzvah, there's also a lotase for violating what they said. You do not get makot for this. Because it's a law that in other circumstances has a capital punishment, and that's something we talked about last week in the context of Tchumin. Again, any elder who who issues his own ruling against the ruling of the Beitin uh, is killed. So therefore, there's a death penalty here. Therefore, the individual who violates does not get makot. And here we get into the categories. Whether it's something that they learned me which means in the Rambam's wording, it means that they got it from an oral tradition. That's called Torah the oral tradition, which means that the Torah says pre-eitz hadar, and we have a tradition that it is the etrog. The Torah says put it a sign on your hand, and we have a tradition that it is a cubed black box with parashiot in it, tefillin. Okay? 
ואחד הדברים שלמדו מפי דעתם. So now the Rambam is making a distinction between things that the court received as a tradition and things that they inferred based on their own reasoning. ביחד מן המידות שהתורה נדרשת בהן, using one of the hermeneutical rules, like זירה שווה, קל וחומר בניינו, etc. ונראה ביניהם דבר זה ככה, and it seems to them that this is the way it should be, that is. Now, why would there be something that wasn't covered already at Harsinai? So there's two possibilities. Possibility one is it was, and it got forgotten, like with the Gemara's statement that 3,000 halachot were forgotten during the mourning for Moshe's death. Moshe died, or it's possible that there are new circumstances that came up that we didn't have reason to have to deal with, such as living under foreign rulers, and therefore we have to look into the Torah and find out how the Torah instructs us to do that. It was something that wasn't yet given. But there's a third category. So there's one category is oral tradition going back to Moshe. Second category things that they inferred via their hermeneutical rules. Third of all is things that they themselves created as a fence around the Torah. Based on what the hour needs, three words, gzerot, decrees, enactments, and minhagot, customs, right? which are three different kind of rabbinic laws that are responses to the times. So all of these three, meaning Torah Shabal Peh, things that they learned from the Midot and Gzerot, Mitzvat Aseli Shmoalahen. So when they made a Gzera or a Takana, which actually plays out as a Minhag of second day Yom Tov and Chutzlaretz, were obligated by Torah law to listen to them because the Torah said uh, that you are obligated to listen to the Beitin. If you violate any of them, even the things that are clearly rabbinic, like the Gzerot, like Muktza, for instance, you have violated the Lotase of the Torah. So the, in, the traditional understanding of the phrase, refers to all of those fences they put up, that they set up in order to strengthen religious life and to make the society better. We understand means, and this is now a traditional explanation of the Pasuk, so it's somewhat self-referential, uh, is something that they inferred from via the hermeneutical rules. That which they tell you, which they recount to you, is things that they themselves heard and goes back all the way to Moshe. Okay, now, Divrei Kabbalah, talking about that first category, the one that the Rambam mentioned just last, things that were received, and this is a critical note, Ein bahen machloket le'olam, there is never a disagreement about these things, which means, v'chol davar, here we go, shetimtsabo machloket, anytime you find a disagreement, the size of a sukkah, whether lulav needs to be bounded together, right, whether or not the uh, the horn of uh, of uh, ox is uh, is uh, permissible, these are machlokot that we have. Then You know that that halacha is not a tradition that goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, if there's a machlokot, it means that at some particular time they introduced the question and there were different opinions about it, and there was no received tradition. And this is a tricky area for the Rambam. Things that are inferred via the hermeneutic rules. If the whole Beit Din agrees that that's the law, then they did. And if they disagreed, then we just follow the majority. And the Din follows the, the majority. And remember, that means it's not Divrei Kabbalah. It did not come all the way from Moshe Rabbeinu. But it is the law. All of the enactments, etc. So let's say some members of the Beit Din say we have to make a gzera against wine produced by non-Jews, even if it's not li- uh, libation wine. Right? For instance, I'm taking things from the Gemara. Or to make a takana about the Beit Knesset. 
or to allow people to continue with a particular custom. The Rambam presents Minhag is that people do something and Beitin has to decide whether to allow them to continue. Certain practices that might be bordering on Avodah Zarah. So if it's not bordering too much, maybe they'll allow them to continue to do it. So let's say some members of the Beitin see that it's appropriate to either in, in, introduce this enactment or to ban this practice, and others disagree. They give and take. And we follow the majority. And what's published is the majority rule. Now, historic note. Famous Gemara in Sanhedrin, Rabbi Yossi's report. When the Beitin Gadol was around, the Sanhedrin was around, there was never a machloket. Machloket here doesn't mean there were no disagreements. It means there was no divergencies in practice. Anytime that there was a law and there was now a doubt about it, from any Jew, he'd go to his local Beitin and ask him, is this part of the animal? If they knew, they'd answer. That was the end of that. So now the questioner, the petitioner, and that local Beitin, or that Beitin would have agents, they'd go up to Shalim, they'd ask the outside Beitin of 23 that was outside on Harbait. If they had a tradition and they knew what the law was, they don't discuss it. If they knew it, then they tell the visiting Beitin and the petitioner. If not, then all 23 of them, plus the Beitin that visited, plus the petitioner, all go into the Beitin that's in the or entrance of the courtyard of the Mikdash. Same thing. If they had a tradition, again, they do not discuss it. They do not look into it. If they have a tradition, they say, oh, yes, we heard a tradition. We know. Right? Then they tell them. Then they come into the office of the hewn stone. Uh, then they come into the Sanhedrin, the central court, and they ask them. Let's say that there they knew. Either because they had a tradition. Maybe at an earlier time they discussed it and inferred it by one of the hermeneutic rules. Or they tell them, Mutar, Asur, Kasher, Pazul. Now we've gotten to the point. Nobody knows. It means they don't have a tradition and they had not yet discussed it. Then, then they start discussing it. They give back and forth. Until either they convince everybody of the law or else they take a vote. And again, follow the majority. And they tell all the people who've come the two Bete Din of 23 that are outside, the Beit Din that came visiting, and the petitioner, they tell them all, this is the halacha, and they go. That was what it was like then. Mishabatal Beit Din Hagadol, once that Beit Din was nullified, was finished, before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, Rav Tam Bisrael. Then there was lots of Machloket, meaning, not just people disagreed, but Zem Metameh V'notein Talmud Varav, Zem Metaher V'notein Talmud Varav, Zeoser Zematir. Each person takes a diametrically opposite position in halacha. They give uh, arguments for their position, and it remains that way, which means there's no body to settle that difference. Okay? So we have to have some rules. So here's one rule. So now it's post-Sanhedrin, all right, the last almost 2,000 years. And there's two elders or two din who disagree. All right, or they disagreed when there was a Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin hadn't yet decided. Whether the, the uh, disagreement was contemporaneous or not, they disagreed. You don't know what the law is, meaning you're somewhat of a scholar, but you don't understand the law, or you're not a scholar and you don't understand what the law is. What's the law? If the question being undertaken is a question of Torah law, you follow the more stringent opinion. When if it's a Durabanan, then you follow the lenient opinion. Right? 
We're going to come back to that phrase, Bishel Sofrim, at the end of the Shior. Now, source 16 is the next chapter. So Beitin, let's say now, uh, used one of the hermeneutic rules, Binyan Av Mikatu Vachad, for instance, and they made a judgment, and that's what the law is. And another Beitin came up afterwards, years later. And they saw a new reasoning that the earlier Beitin didn't think, which would have changed the law. They have the rights and the mandate to do that, and to change the law. Because how did the Torah present this whole scenario? You come to the judge, it's in your day, meaning, you're not to be loyal to a Beitin that's gone, but rather to the Beitin of your day. Right? And now this is the Beitin Hagadol. This is not anybody else. Now, Beitin Shegazrug Zerau Tignu Takanav Inhigu Minhagu Pashat Adavar Yisrael. Let's say there's a local Beitin, and they made a some sort of a Zerah, and it became accepted among the Jewish people. And now another Beitin comes, and they want to cancel it out. And they want to cancel that Takanav, etc. They can't do that unless they are greater, both in number and in wisdom, than the earlier Beitin. And of course, it's very hard to imagine any Beitin saying, we're greater than our forebears. If they were only greater in either wisdom or number, meaning the size of the Beitin, that, that it's not enough to overturn it. Even if the original reason is something we talked about in the earlier shiurim, about my machronim, even if the original reason for the gzera is gone, you still can't cancel it unless you're greater. How could you possibly be greater? If we're talking about the Sanhedrin, it's always 71. Which means this is not about a small beitin, but rather a regular beitin, the Sanhedrin. The answer is, So what's the minyan? The minyan is not the size of the beitin, that's always 71. But what it means is that if the amount of the, the community of scholars that have accepted this ruling that the beitin said, and they didn't disagree, if that group is now greater, and sees fit to support the Beitin overturning the earlier ruling, then they could do it. What is this talking about? This is only talking about things they did not do, the ban things, just to protect the Torah. Just like any other law. But if Beitin made a rule, Beitin Agadol made a rule, and prohibited something to protect the Torah. And this prohibition spread throughout all of Am Yisrael, like non-Jewish wine, for instance. Even if the next Beitin is greater, the way the Rambam defined it, then, um, then they still can't overturn it, if that was the reason for the law. Now, this is something that hits us, is going to hit us twice this year, once with Shofar, once with Lulav. Um, if Beitin, even if it's not as great as the earlier one, sees fit to temporarily suspend that Gzeirah, then Beitin can do it. Why? Because these decrees should not be stronger than the words of the Torah itself. And we're going to see about, about that in a minute. Beitin can uproot Torah law temporarily. Beitin made a rule to support, to protect the law and put a fence around it so people shouldn't violate the Torah. Then they can punish uh, even though it's not, they're punishing a sort of judicial distra- discretion, but they cannot say this is the law forever, right? Let's say they temporarily saw that it was fit to either not do a mitzvah say, 
or to violate Elotase, to bring everybody back to the religion, or to save Jewish people from violating some other law, we do based on what the hour needs. And the Rambam, being a doctor, gives a medical analogy. Just like you amputate a limb to save everything. This is based upon the whole thing of Eliyahu, bring a korban in a time of Isur Bamot to bring everybody back from worshipping the Baal. And he equates it to the issue of pikuach nefesh. By the way, the uh, the parallel that we have, we'll see it a little a little later on with what's coming up. Now, there's another juridical consideration. If Beitin decides that they have to make some sort of a an enactment or a decree. They have to first see, can the majority of the people stand up to it? For instance, there was reason to argue that, that in places where we don't know when Rosh Chodesh is, you have to have two days from Kippur. But if you make a Gzera like that, most people won't be able to live up to it. So they didn't make the Gzera. So, Hareg Shigazru Beitina. What happens in Gzera? Beitin made a Gzera. And they assumed that everybody could stand up to it. And, but after they made the Gzerah, people weren't so careful with it. And it did not spread. The, the decree is canceled. The classic example, of course, is Shemen Akum. They can't force the people to do it. Which means there's a sort of a built-in democ- democracy to the process. So let's say they made a gzera, they assumed that it had spread. For a long time, that was the case. Then another Beitin came along and they checked. And they found, And they saw that the decree had not really spread. They can cancel it, even though they can overturn it, even though they're not as great as the earlier Beitin, the way I'm defined it. And then the Rambam says, A Beitin will lose its integrity if it's known as a Beitin Desharya, Beitin that's Matir. If, uh, it's, if it overturns two rulings, it shouldn't be too quick to overturn a third, because then by the, its integrity is lost. Now, the Rambam comes now, um, the, the thing that I was mentioning earlier about Beitin suspending something cuts to the issue of both Shofar and Lulav being suspended for Gzerad de Rabbanan, even though those are mitzvot on, on this year's Sukkot starts on Shabbat, of course, both mitzvot to Oraita, that we're not fulfilling because of Gzerad de Rabbanan. Okay. Now, the last of these halachot, halachatet, um, again, cuts to the issue of not only the Beitin's mandate to to legislate, but also the 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 public angle of that of that uh, mandate and how it has to be balanced. Here we go. has the right and the mandate to make a decree and prohibit something and that prohibition will last forever. And they can also permit certain things temporarily. How does the Torah say then? Don't add to the Torah and don't take away from it. Beitin does it left and right. So the answer is, It says, what did the Torah prohibit? Adding to the words of the Torah or taking away from them and making it permanent and saying it's mina Torah. Whether it's the written Torah or the oral tradition. Oral tradition again, meaning what they received. Kate side, here we go. Harei katu ba Torah, and it's a famous case. Lot vashel gdi b'chalevimo, right? Cooking milk and meat. Mi piyashmua lamdu, but we have a tradition. Mi piyashmua that we learn shizeh katu asar levashel v'lachol basar bechalav. That is specifically to cook and to eat basar bechalav. Bein basar beima, bein basar chayat. It's true about cows. True about deers. But from the Torah, as we all know, chicken, 
birds are mutar with, with milk. Now, if a beitin comes along and says, you can now have deer meat with milk, that's taken away from the Torah. Meaning, you're not obliterating the Isser, but you're, you're, you're uh, diminishing the scope of the Isser from the Torah. That's Gorea. And if on the other hand, someone were to come along and say, chicken is considered included in the Pasuk, it's from the Torah, that's called adding to the, to, the, to the Torah. So notice that the prohibition of lotigwa and lotosif, to add and to take away, is not a prohibition, or at least not only a prohibition, of adding a new mitzvah or taking a whole mitzvah away, but it's adding, but it's adding to or or diminishing the spectrum of the mitzvah, the range of the mitzvah. Aval imamar basar of mutar minatorah. But a guy says chicken is mutar. Va'anunesoroto. We're prohibiting it. Don't dealam shukzera. We're going to let everybody know it's the rabbanan as a gzera shalevomen adavar chova. Of mutar minashalon parish kach hachayam muteret shalon parsha. Because what's the problem? If we do, if we, if chicken is mutar, people say, yeah, chicken is mutar because it's not explicit in the pasuk. Neither is deer, and therefore deer is mutar. So we're doing it to protect against that. and somebody else will come and say, It says a kid, so therefore he'll, somebody will come along and say, a cow's okay. And then somebody else will come along and say, you could even have a goat as long as it's in cow's milk. Because it only says in its own mother's milk. You know what's coming next. You could cook a kid in somebody else's mother's milk. Therefore, we're prohibiting all milk and meat, including chicken. In other words, if that's how they've termed it, which the Rambam is going to claim that is how they termed it, that's not called mosif, that's not called adding to the Torah, and anything of that sort. And therefore, when we say the second day Yom Tov is Asur, we don't say it's Asur because the Torah, it's the Oraita. We say that the rabbis put in a protection because of the doubt of when the date was, and then there's the other consideration of continuing to do it now, Right, so if we were to say it's the oraita, that's baltosif. Okay, all right, good. Now, the, the last thing I'd like to, to look at here, uh, which is in source seventeen, um, is a particular phrase that the Rambam used. He used it already, and he's going to use it again here. And we're going to have a chance to look at the Kesef Mishnah and see how he takes it apart. And then the last thing that we're going to well, we'll do two two more last things, as it were. And the phrase is divrei sofrim. Divrei sofrim is a tricky phrase. Divrei sofrim we traditionally translate as being dirabanan. All right, so let's take a look. Now, the Rambam, in uh, a little bit of a history of this, the Rambam uh, in Sefer HaMitzvot lists uh, Kiddushin as a mitzvah doraita, and he says the only form of Kiddushin that is doraita is bia. In the earlier versions of the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam said, Bia and Shtar are Doraita, and Kesef is not. In the final recension of the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam said all three are Doraita. So in most of our printed Rambams, except for Shabbosi Frankel's, it has the earlier version. But both Kapach and Shabbosi Frankel uh, noted that the, in the proper last versions, when the Rambam re-edited it, he had all three Doraita. Okay, here we go. Um, in the third parak of Hechot Ishut, the Ram says that if somebody does Kiddushin through Bia, that's Kiddushin Doraita. Also, if you give her a star, that's not the Ketubah, star Kiddushin, that's Doraita. That's a Sugyan Kiddushin, that, uh, that marriage and divorce are compared to each other, juxtaposed, and therefore just like divorce is affected through a star, Marriage is also affected through a star. Aval, Hakesef. And I promise you, every wedding you've ever been to, every wedding I've ever been to, any Kiddushin you've ever seen is Kiddushin Kesef. Shavu Kesef with a ring. Hakesef midivrei sofrim. It's midivrei sofrim. Shene'emar, and this is what's really strange. Midivrei sofrim, we think, means dirabanan. Shene'emar, because the Torah says, ki kach ish isha. The Torah says, if a man takes a woman, 
as a wife, ואמרו חכמים, לקוחים אלו יהיו בכסף, שאמרו נתן כסף וסדר, ככה ממני, החכמים learned from the story of Avram buying the field from Ephron, that kicha is with kesef. So yikach is kesef. So the Rambam immediately puts himself in a jam. He says, kesef is midivrei sofrim, and he quotes a pasuk. And then what does he say? He says that that pasuk links to another pasuk, and what do we call that? We call that a gzeira shava. A gzeira shava is one of the midot shatoa nereshet ben, one of the hermeneutic rules, which means the Rambam says when you learn something via hermeneutic rule, it's not doraita. Okay, now that doesn't really trouble us in the context of um, of uh, what we learned in Hilchot Mamrim, because that could be the second layer. The first layer is things they receive by tradition, and the second layer is things that they inferred via their hermeneutic rules. However, as you'll see here, um, the Kesef Mishnah, Reels of Karos, comment on it. He, here we go. Zedavar Kashet, source 18. Heach katav shakesef v'divrei sofrim. How can you say kesef is there? So for him, shari lamdu yirushay kesef kicha kicha mistei afron. After all, we learned it via gzera shava, and here as we go, v'chol davar inomad be'achat miyud gimel midot abedvar torah. The kesef mishnah's position is anything that's inferred via hermeneutic rules is considered doraita. I will add another piece to the puzzle, which is if a guy gives a girl a ring and says rabbi kudeshetli, and then on the spot. Another guy offers her a kiddushin through a star, let's say. We're not going to say, well, the first one was only Drabanan, and therefore she needs a divorce from the second guy because those kiddushin are chal. We know, say no, the minute she accepted kiddushin, she's off limits and kiddushin don't happen. And therefore, the first kiddushin, which were with Kesef, are 100%. Okay? So here, Kesef Mishnah points out that Moshe Cohen points out, um, the Rambam's son also wrote in a tshuva that the Rambam later changed his mind, and all three are doraita. I said, I don't think that's true. Why? This, by the way, this Kesemish is from earlier. He references our halacha in source, eight, in source 17. Um, Here we go. Now, the Rambam, when he says, we're going to have to see what this is, what he means by Minashoresh, I'll explain. And he says, also, if you look in Hachot Shumotu Masrot, Remember that if a Kohen betrothes a non-Kohanic girl, she eats truma and Maser. What if he gives her Kesef? If that's only Kedushin to Rabbanon, she can't eat truma. And the Rambam says that she can. He, and he doesn't distinguish between what kind of Kedushin she had. The question I asked, the Rambam says in many places, if a guy gives a girl Kesef, and then afterwards she gets up skidushin from another guy, it doesn't count because she's already Mikudashit. Now here we're going to get into the d- definition. And that's why I'm quoting this. Divrei Sofrim does not mean Takanat Chachamim. It doesn't mean something established by the rabbis. It is part of Torah Shabbat. So Kesemish just says that when the Rambam says divrei sofrim, he does not mean rabbinic enactment. He means that it's something that was received uh, by Moshe, right? V'lo nichtav beferush b'Torah. It was not written explicitly in the Torah. Shemar b'gzera shava. It was it was inferred by gzera shava. Meaning that's how God directed Moshe to it. That's the Kesemishta thinks what the Rambam means when he says divrei sofrim. It's not nearly this this easy. The Rambam already wrote elsewhere that even halachal Moshe Sinai is called divrei sofrim, even though the Rambam maintains, of course, Moshe Sinai come back from, from Moshe. But they have the same laws din Torah. We saw in the first two shirim about halachal Moshe Sinai. That's not exactly the case. The Rambam himself says. That Al-Khalamosh Sinai is not as strong as something explicit in the Torah. We saw it in the context of Trefot. 
Okay, and then he goes on to what is we think is maybe of the Ram, the Rambam's um, proof or argument for for saying that uh, Kesef is weaker than than Star and then Biyah. Okay, I'd like to take us back to source two. Source two, um, sorry, source fourteen, the second source that we have which is Rabbi Simloi's drasha about the 613 mitzvot. And as I mentioned numerous times, Rabbi Simloi gives this drasha and presents us the number 613, presents 365, 248, presents nothing more. We do not have a record of any time during the period of the Gemara that there was any intent to try to figure out what that list meant. What's on the list, what's not on the list. And it seems to start in the 9th century with Rabbi Shon Kaira and the Halachog Dalot, who compiled a list of mitzvot, and it goes on through uh, Sadi Gaon and others of the Gaonim who wrote different forms of the list, including poetic lists, Acharizi, and then we get to the Rambam. The Rambam, is in, as an introduction to the Mishnah Torah, wrote a book in Arabic called Sefer HaMitzvot. We've referenced it several times. And Sefer HaMitzvot was, he introduced it with a 14-paragraph introduction of 14 different points that he's a criteria that have to be met in order for something to make it onto the list. How do we define the list? What if something's totally derabanan? What if something is a general kind of mitzvah? What if it's a mitzvah that was only for that generation? It doesn't go on the list. So the this is and this is what the when the Kesemishnah said Shoresh, that's what he's referring to. And so this remember is a is is the preface to say from mitzvot, which itself presses preface to the Mishnah Torah. Although over time, the Rambam's thinking evolved, and that's what we saw, for instance, with the various forms of Kiddushin. So the second Shoresh, right here, Shoresh HaSheni, Source 19. And by the way, the Rambam's introduction to his Perush HaMishnah is very wonderful, wonderful work, and really exp- expands on a lot of these particular topics, among others. Most of the laws of the Torah, they actually, we get them from these 13 hermeneutic rules. And sometimes there's a dispute about that. Actually, often. Sometimes there's laws that we have a traditional explanation from Moshe. There there's no disagreement. Everybody knows, Priyat Sadar is an etrog. Nobody thinks it's a lemon. But even though we have a received tradition, they'll sometimes use one of the, the psukim via one of the midot as a support. What we call an asmachta. It's part of the wisdom of the text of the Torah to provide allusions to the, to the oral tradition. I explained it already there. So based on that, we have to say that things that they inferred via the hermeneutic rules, it wasn't weren't necessarily said to Moshe at Har Sinai. We also can't say they're automatically all the Rabbanan. Because sometimes it would be the traditional understanding, um, and this is what the Kesef Mishra is talking about, is that Kesef was the traditional understanding, going back to Moshe Rabbeinu, and Yikach, Kicha, Kicha, from Zdei Ephron, was just an illusion. So here's the Rambam's rule. It says, if you see something that's not explicit in the Torah, Timseu Talmud, you find it in the Gemara, Shalamdu Bachat Mishlot they've learned it via the rules. If they themselves say, this is Torah, then you should count it as a mitzvah. That's, remember, the Rambam's whole point of this is what counts as a mitzvah. The, 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 the chain of tradition said it's Torah. If they never say Torah, then it's Torah. There's no pasuk that says it. Right, and this is he's taking another shot at the Bahag who said 
He counted fearing the sages as a mitzvah say. Why? Very famous Russia. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Hamsoni used to darshan every et as an expansion. And then he finally got to et Hashem When he expands on God, he can't do that. So he didn't say anything. And the student said, what's going to happen to all the etim, etc. And finally Rabbi Akiva came along and said, et is there to expand the Chachamim. But that's a drasha. So the, the Bahag thought that must be Doraita because it's an expansion based on, a, it's, an, it's a rule based on an expansive word in the Torah. If that's the case, we're thinking about this. is there to expand to your mother's husband and etimecha is there to expand to your father's wife. How come they don't count that as a separate mitzvah, meaning the Bahag? And this itself is a problem within the Rambam itself. Okay, we'll skip down um, to, uh, to the parentheses. We have the very famous statement of Chazal, The text always means, first, what it means. Consistently, when the when the Talmud is involved in trying to infer something, it'll start by saying, "Yeah, but what does the pasuk really say?" He said they find a pasuk and they use it to learn things to support things that they already knew, and then they say, "Yeah, but what's the pasuk really talking about?" That tells you right away that the th- statement they're making is not Doraita. And what did the Bahag do? The Bahag counted all of these mitzvot of chesed, etc., as mitzvot based on the drasha that you see in front of you. Okay? And, um, and so therefore he goes ahead. Now turn to the next page. And just to, to highlight here, for instance, Chazal, based on a pasuk, say that a person has an obligation to involve himself in astronomy and mathematics. Because, and then in the green, if you start counting all of the different things, that are inferred via the midot, you're going to end up with a thousand mitzvot, thousands of mitzvot, and therefore it can't be. And so therefore the Rambam has his position here. Now, um, the the point of this being is that the Rambam um, has this terminology, divreisofrim, that according to the Kesef Mishnah is referring to exactly this. When something is learned via one of the hermeneutic rules of inference, and Chazal then say it's the oraita, then it's Doraita, but if they don't say it, we should treat it as Durabanan. The Kesemishnah then claims that, for instance, Kiddushay Kesef, which Chazal deal with as being a Doraita throughout, are really Doraita. Why are they called Divrei Sofrim? Because they're not explicit in the Torah, they're not learned via juxtaposition, which evidently is a bit stronger, but they're rather learned via one of the Midot. And now to give an example of how the Rambam deals with this exact problem for our last source, source 20 from Hilchot Evel, Perak of Chot Evel, of mourning, um, deals with Nichum Avelim, etc. And he says as follows, Mitzvah Taseshul Divrehem, it's a mitzvah of the rabbis, Levaker Cholim, visit the sick, Ulenachem Avelim, to console the bereaved, Ulotzi HaMate, to help with a funeral, Ulachnitz HaKala, to help with a kala, to rejoicing and to help with the expenditures of a wedding, to escort guests out, and to be involved in burial, to actually bury and carry the body, all the things involved in the burial, to elate the bride and groom, these things are all gemilut chesed shebigufo, as opposed to tzedakah, which is bimamono, and this has no upper limit. 
אף בי שכל מצוות אלו מדבריהם, הרי אין בכלל ואהבת לברך כמוך. So now the Rambam opens the door for us. He says, there's a rule in the Torah, it's called ואהבת לברך כמוך. That's the Doraita. And even though all of these obligations are rabbinic, and make no mistake, they are rabbinic, they are all under the rubric of ואהבת לברך כמוך, which means you have the following kind of mix. What's motivating me to go visit the sick, besides whatever feelings I have, is a rabbinic command. When I go visit the sick, I fulfilled a mitzvah of the Torah, which is v'hav t'lerecha kamocha, right? So what we've seen over the course of the past uh, 50 minutes or so is just a, a smattering, a small smattering of the, um, of the framework of the Torah, the system by which Beitin institutes laws. What are the limitations of the Beitin Agadolti Institute laws? One other thing that we didn't discuss is what's the status of a Beit Din afterwards instituting laws, and those are only local laws, and they don't become part of the permanent halacha, etc. Uh, and that's really for another shiur. Uh, but what we have seen is that there are things that are explicit in the Torah, there are things that are clearly rabbinic in nature, and then there's that area in between. And that's what we spent most of our time focusing on, is the area in between. Things that are inferred from the Torah, things that You could make the argument are, uh, are d'oraita, but since they're not explicit in the Torah, we don't use that term. We have a term, divrei sofrim, but what does it mean? The answer is it depends on the context, what it means. It may be d'orabanan, it may be d'oraita, but it's called divrei sofrim. One thing that we see is that, at least in many cases, divrei sofrim at least are dealt with as being more lenient than d'oraita, even if they are considered to be So, shall we say, Doraita in the, in the Kesef Mishnah's form of doing things. Um, and so, um, hopefully we've shed some light and brought some warmth into the, uh, into the picture and illumination and have a better understanding of how the system of the Beit Din HaGadol works. And here's Hashem, uh, next week we're going to have a special shiur on uh, Tzom Gedalia, on Tzom Gedalia, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Everybody should have a wonderful day.